Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. We're doing a double episode today. <laughs> Trying to get caught up. It was my bad that I inadvertently had a sort of cord issue with my microphone. So we recorded this episode, what, a week ago? Yeah, about a week ago, yeah. And now we have to re-record it because well, I I mean, up. this time it was you, it's been me, it's... Sometimes we have technical difficulties. We're working through them. And I just have a feeling that these microphones that we use don't last forever. And I think that the cord is just starting to get to the point where it's had its better days and it's like ready yeah. for it to be done. So yeah. we have new equipment on order. It will get here soon, hopefully. And in the meantime, Darcy and I are just going to go ahead and do it. Um, all right. Let's jump right in. Um, I want to talk about, first of all, before we jump into the main topic, um, something that a lot of folks don't necessarily think about. And I know that there is, there are a lot of people have lost their jobs in this whole coronavirus thing. And I don't want to get too deeply into that because I feel like we talk about it, uh, ad nauseum yeah. and it's in the news everywhere. You can't find any articles that talk about anything besides the coronavirus or what it's done to society and isolation and quarantine and all that kind of stuff. We get it. It's been said, been done, but a lot of people, I don't think, think about the zoos and a lot of zoos around the world now are having issues because they have lost a tremendous amount of their income because they're not getting tourism and they're not allowed to have people come in to see the animals. So they've lost a lot of funding. Mm -hmm. I just want to direct people's attention to that. We're going to put the link for one in particular into our show notes today. And this particular zoo is a German zoo that's not doing well at all and could really use the help. Um, it is the Colchester Zoo, and they are looking for assistance with veterinary bills and other expenses to keep the zoo going during this time period. They have a link as well where you can donate to them, or if you want to adopt one of the animals virtually, that would really, really help them out. I know that a lot of zoos are doing similar type things as well as animal shelters. So if you can't have an animal from a shelter foster at your home during this time, you can donate and virtually mm -hmm. adopt one as well. So yeah, just be aware of that. They have the zoos are not open, but they still have maintenance costs and veterinary costs, and food and, and food costs and things like that that they're still having to um, pay for and. And they're not having any money coming in and just money going out. And so just another thing to kind of think about um, if you can, if you're able during this yeah, time. It's be nice to kind of do that for those little guys and, and help them out. Because I know that mm -hmm. some of them are facing closures and possible um, other things with those animals that are in those places that may actually... It's, it's a very sad story. So I don't yeah. want to get too deeply into that because there's enough depressing news out there today. But go support the zoos if you can, in particular the Colchester Zoo. Um, let's jump into today's case. Yeah, what enough depressing stuff. Let's talk about murder. Um, right? <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about, because this was kind of recently in the news, we are going to be talking about the Grim Sleeper. So Lonnie Franklin Jr., was born on August 30th, 1952, and he grew up in South Central LA. Now, there's not too much about his background, but we do know that he joined the army and was stationed in West Germany in the 70s. And 
The reason we know this is because on April 17th, 1974 in Stuttgart, he and two other soldiers raped a 17-year-old local girl at knife point. And one of the soldiers actually took photographs of the attack. Just, just disgusting. Yeah, so she was walking home. She was a local. She was walking home from her boyfriend's house. They offered her, I think they they stopped and they asked her for directions, and then they offered her a ride home. She hopped in the car with them, and then they attacked her. After the attack, she convinced Franklin to give her his phone number. Um, I guess maybe it was like a placating thing, or you know, maybe she was clearly trying to get evidence and You know, she convinced him that she actually did like him and all of this. And so when they dropped her off, she asked for Franklin's phone number and she immediately went to the hospital and reported the attack. Um, And her, she's only identified in all the news articles as Ingrid W. And that's only because she chose to identify herself. Right. Um, So she reported the attack to police and they helped her set up a meeting with Franklin at a local train station. And when he showed up, she was supposed to, like, give him a signal. I think she was supposed to, like, drop a napkin or something like that. And that was the signal that, hey, this is the guy. And they come in and they arrested him. Good. And this was local police. This was not military. Okay. So Franklin and the other two men that participated in this attack were convicted after an eight-day trial. And he was sentenced to a little over three years. And the other two were sentenced to four years. But... After serving for less than a year of his sentence, he was released and given a general discharge from the army on July 24th, 1975. Okay. And the other soldiers actually served their full sentences. Disgusting that he would only spend a year in jail for this crime. Absolutely. Number two, why the hell would he not get a dishonorable discharge? That pisses me off. It, it wasn't even, so what it was, this wasn't even like an other than honorable. It was just a general discharge. So not, you know, it's not a dishonorable discharge. It's not other than honorable, just general discharge, which basically alludes to disciplinary problems, but doesn't explicitly say it was bad enough to kick him out of the army. And if this isn't bad enough to get kicked out of the army, then that's very upsetting. And not only that, but since it's a foreign criminal conviction, it's not going to show up on any background reports. Mm. In the U.S. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. So, so it's... So it's essentially like he was not convicted at all. Yeah. So it appears that he went back to L.A., all right? And now in L.A. in the 80s, this was a time of um, crack epidemic and, and things like that. So there were a lot of deaths of several women in South Central L.A., and the LAPD classified these deaths as NHI, meaning no humans involved. Which is so disgusting. This was, yeah, so this was apparently how they tracked cases involving chronic drug drug users and sex workers that were known to the police. So just this, I mean, this isn't exclusive to the LAPD. This was just that, this was the time. I mean, unfortunately, it probably happens. But this is how law enforcement viewed chronic drug users and sex workers at the time. Well, and I think a large portion of society really dehumanized these victims. Absolutely. Not just the police. Absolutely. Because I remember the conceptions of people, and, and when you hear news reports, it's like somehow these individuals are less than Absolutely. the rest of us because they used drugs or, or into sex work. So 
just a horrific period in, in history. And so what ended up happening from all of these deaths, a community movement began in the area, and they started pressuring the LAPD to not only acknowledge that the deaths were related, but that these deaths were not due to drug use. So yeah. in response, the LAPD formed a joint task force with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to investigate the deaths. And in 1985, this joint task force announced that they believed that 10 of the deaths of these women were linked to one killer, and they dubbed him at that time the South Side Slayer. All right. However, once they started investigating this, evidence began to surface that there were actually several serial killers working in the South Los Angeles area at the time. And eventually, they were able to attribute at least six of the murders to five different killers. Which is horrific. Five separate serial killers operating at the same time in one city. And they weren't being investigated until this community group got together and told the LAPD they needed to start doing something about it. And so the majority of these victims were strangled or stabbed. All right. And... They were able to, I believe, wrap up at least six of these, like I said. So, but on August 10th, 1985, you had a new series of murders that started happening. So the body of Deborah Jackson was found and she had been shot. All right. So this starts a new series of murders over a three year period. Seven women and one man were dumped, were murdered and dumped in alleyways and dumpsters. And ballistics showed that they had all been killed with the same 25 caliber gun. So now you got another serial killer working. These killings wow. continued through 1988 when Inietra, I believe is how you pronounce the name, Inietra, Washington was attacked. Okay. So Inietra survived and she was finally able to provide a description of the man responsible for her attack and what they believe was these murders. All right. So she reported that she was walking and a black man pulled up alongside her in an orange Ford Pinto and offered her a ride. Distinctive, a little bit. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And when she declined, the man responded, that's what's wrong with you black women. People can't be nice to you. Good Lord. So this had the effect of making Eniatra feel bad for him. All right. So she ends up. Doesn't want to prove that. You know, she doesn't want that statement to be proven true. So she's going to go out of her way to not appear in that way. Exactly. So she ends up feeling sorry for the man and accepts the ride. All right. So after a while, they're driving in the car and later testify that she suddenly felt blood coming from her chest. She just suddenly felt warm and she realizes at that point that she's been shot. Okay. And when she asked the man why, he responded that she disrespected him by not getting into the car the first time. Okay. How terrifying. So then he pushes her from the car. He raped her. He took her photo. Okay. And then he left her for dead. All right. This guy's big on taking pictures of stuff. Exactly. But then, so after she was attacked and survived, the killing stopped. Okay. So... In 2001, the LAPD begins looking into their backlog of unsolved cases. They are sending hair and skin samples from cold cases to the lab and just trying to see, solve some of mm-hmm. these cold cases, right? 
in 2004, the LAPD lab found matches between the, there's some new killings in 2002 and 2003. And the samples from those killings, DNA skin samples from those killings match the murders from 1985 through 1988. Mm. So he's back. All right. And when this is reported in the news, this is when he gets the name, the grim sleeper because he took this 13 year break. Okay. 13, 14 or year so break. they think. Right. Exactly. So, However, even with this new, not only do we have a link between these murders, but now we know he's back. The LAPD still determined they weren't going to investigate further. That's crazy. They also, they also didn't go to the families of the victims and tell them that they were linked together. Good so Lord. these, the family of families of these women don't know that their loved ones' murders connected to these serial killings going on, right? I wonder what the purpose is. They just don't want to create mass panic or like what? they don't want to. I mean, I just don't understand what the purpose I think of that it's is. A, it, the, everything I read, it appears to be a lack of consideration for the families that they just were not talking to the families. I mean, I can understand if they keep information mm-hmm. secret or private because they're trying to catch the person and it's related to we don't want it to get out there so that the person hides or changes their MO. But it doesn't seem like that's right. the case and here. If there's somebody, if there, if there's one person that's responsible for multiple murders, that's a public health risk. It's a public safety risk. So they're not telling right. people. They're not telling the you know the victims, the families that they're, these murders are related. They're, it just sounds like they're not considerate of this population, of people, which goes back to the beginning. You know. Yeah. So absolutely. On January first, two thousand seven. A homeless man collecting cans from a dumpster discovered the body of 25-year-old Janicia Peters. And Janicia had been shot and placed in a black garbage bag tied with a twist tie. And again, this murder was linked through DNA to the Grim Sleeper killings. Okay. He basically treated them like trash and threw them out. Literally. It's it's disgusting. Yeah. And in 2008... The Los Angeles officials announced a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the murderer. That's a huge, yeah. That's a lot of money. Amount. I don't know if that was a typo. I mean, but that's a huge amount. But anyway, so they released this, this uh, information about the reward, and the LAPD chief, Bill Bratton, released a phone call to an LAPD dispatcher from 1987. Okay. Just randomly released a nine one one call. Well, it's they, it. They I don't know why it wasn't released earlier. Like they just took this time to be like, oh, we also, by the way, have this call of this connected murder. So, in the call, the man said he wanted to report a murder because he had seen a man dump a woman's body out of a van, and he gave a full license plate. A full license plate of the ba- of the van. Oh my god! But when the dispatcher asked for a description of the man, the caller seemed not to have seen him. Okay, and then he also mm-hmm. declined to give the dispatcher his name. He said, "Haha, I know too many people by." What the hell? I don't know what that means. Do you think that was the Grim Sleeper? I don't know. There's no. In all the stuff you read about this, there's nothing 
about any of the other crimes that say, like, there was a phone call related. You know, it's not like the Zodiac mm-hmm. where, like, that was a thing. Um, it may have been him this one time. I don't know. I'm not sure. Or maybe he or maybe just, they you know, someone... It. Or maybe it was a homeless person with mental health issues. And so... Who, yeah, who knows? I could see that being the case. Right. So... According to Chief Bratton, the van was still warm to the touch when the police found it about 40 minutes after the call, and it was sitting in the parking lot of a church. Wow. Mm -hmm. And this victim was identified as 23-year-old Barbara Ware, and she would be the fourth victim of the groom sleeper. So they find this van in the parking lot of the church, right? And so they they start talking to the church, and it belonged to the church. So, so he sold a van. Yeah. But yeah. So wow. but the timeline is really interesting and it's kind of tight for the, all of this to happen. So according to the church, they were having a sleepover for mothers and their children. All right. And the van was shuttling around until about 1120 PM. And Barbara's body was found in an alley about an hour later, four miles away from the church. So this wow. is... This is a very so he tight was kind timeline. Of tight. It's timeline. I mean, if the guy, you know, at the church is telling the truth, right? And yeah. this is just another example of police not prioritizing these murders because of the environment in which these women lived, you know. So what did this guy do for a living? Did we talk about that? We yeah, haven't no. talked about it yet. I was gonna get okay. into that um, a little bit later. While police had the suspect's DNA, because they sent the stuff to the lab. They ran it through the California database, and they ran it through CODIS, which is the FBI's database, and they didn't find matches for anything, right? So this guy kept his nose clean. Yes. But when, in 2009, when they searched the California database for profiles that showed a familial link, they identified a man named Christopher Franklin, who had been convicted on felony weapons charges. All right. Hmm. So... Christopher's DNA matched in so many ways. Like, it's like you hear somebody talking about DNA and they're like, it just lit up the screen, right? So it matched in so yeah. many ways that they knew they had found a close relative, a sleeper. So it's not him, but it's a close relative. So it's much the same way as they located the Golden State Killer, correct? It's the same technology, but the Golden State Killer was the DNA that was uploaded to a public database, Whereas this DNA of Christopher Franklin was uploaded into the criminal system, California's criminal database. So. Okay. So not everyone could just access the criminal database. Yeah. That's strictly for law enforcement. But they can with the public. Okay. Okay. Got it. So that's kind of the whole question about the genetic genealogy with the Golden State Killer. Should law enforcement be able to access open record DNA like that? So, but anyway, that's a story for another time. Um, so when they looked at Christopher Franklin's family tree, they identified his father, Monty Franklin Jr., as a possible suspect. So he would have been the right age. The first string of murders were committed um, to, to be his possible suspect. All right. So what they did is they followed him around and they put an undercover police officer at a restaurant posing as a busboy. So Franklin was there celebrating like, a birthday party. And they had this undercover police officer posing as a busboy. And when Franklin left, the police officer obtained um, a partially eaten pizza crust, a plate, and a cup that he had used. 
Can you imagine how terrifying that probably was for the poor guy who was acting as a bus? I mean, he's literally feet away in the same room potentially as a serial killer. Yeah, I know. That must have been horrific. Yeah. And I mean, presumably a younger police officer because it would draw attention if it was like an older bus boy. Right. Right. You know, so yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So well, maybe they didn't tell the bus boy what was really going on. They were saying, we need you to go get DNA for this. They didn't know. So he maybe didn't know who the person was. Yeah. 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 Could be. They just know they needed his DNA for something. Yeah. So, so anyway. From the pizza cross plate and cup, investigators were able to match Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s DNA to the samples obtained from the Grim Sleepers murder victim. They got him. And it turned out that Franklin had been convicted of a felony in 2003. So he didn't really keep his nose clean. And he had prior theft charges and uh, burglary charges and things like that pretty much the whole time that he was back in the States, right? But they weren't collecting DNA back then on convictions, correct? They started... Like they do now. They started collecting DNA for um, convictions and you get arrested for specific crimes in 2004 when that law passed. And yeah, so clearly way yeah. before this happened, way before right. that. But he was on... Which is why he wasn't pinging in CODIS. He was on, 2000, on, on probation in 2003 for a felony. So oh, he should have had his DNA taken they at didn't that ha- time. Um, but the probation department... So somebody dropped the ball. Well, the probation department just didn't have the resources to get every um, every probate, probationer's DNA at that time. They didn't have the resources to go around and collect wow. everybody's DNA until 2005. Hmm. But that doesn't really, like, it doesn't really clear them of any wrongdoing when because they, they still could have gotten it in 2005, right? So... Right. The, anyway... So basically, it's it's another example of him falling through the cracks. All right. So clearly, let's talk about what he did and how he was able to even fall through the cracks. So for a job, he worked for he worked in sanitation, and he was, I believe, a part time auto mechanic for the Los Angeles Police Department. <laughs> so he was literally right underneath their nose, right under their noses. But this also probably did give him some kind of insight into how to cover up crimes, right? When he's working oh, yeah. with police every day. So he was right at those. But maybe also this kind of benefited him in a way from, you know, the earlier or whatever. So he knew he learned about DNA or something like that. I don't know. But. So, I mean, he was probably as mm-hmm. well listening to chatter and seeing, you know, are they talking about this? Is this something nope. that's in the eye? Exactly. So let's see. When he was arrested, they obviously they searched his home, and detectives found nearly 1,000 photos and hundreds of hours of video of women and teenage girls that they took into evidence. Oh, my God. So some of the photos... Video. So yeah. not only is it pictures, yeah. but video, too? Yeah, video, too. Ugh. And some of the photos, and I presume some of the video, show men nude, unconscious, bleeding, and possibly even dead. Okay. Oh, and included in the photos and like a little hiding place that he had was a picture of Eniatra Washington, 
Okay. So she testified mm. or she reported to police that she was losing consciousness from blood loss because she was shot and that that's when he took her photo and left her. Okay. And in the photo that they found of her, she is partially nude and she is slouching over, appearing to be unconscious. Okay. So her testimony and what they mm-hmm. found in evidence now are matching up. All right. So after they mm-hmm. identify all of the known victims, there's still many more Ugh. photos of unidentified women. So this is kind of like the Samuel Little case where... Right. I mean, I realize his were like drawings, but like he kept the images and the memories of these specific women and they were able to help exactly. identify them in that way later. So this guy has hundreds of pictures of women that he's abused and mm-hmm. committed so, rape and God knows what yes, else to. but whereas Samuel Little, he, he, he made those drawings once he was already in, after he was already in custody. So all of those women are known victims that he's saying he murdered. Yeah. In the case of Lonnie Franklin Jr., we don't even know if these, some of these women are victims. So they may have been consensual acquaintances. We don't, don't know who they are. All right. So I just can't imagine anyone saying, yeah, sure, tie me up, beat the shit out of me, and take my picture. Well, I think there's some that are of women that are not unconscious or not, they, they're not beaten up or anything like that. So I, I think okay, the so circumstances normal of some pictures. Of the photos are a little bit more difficult to kind of understand. So right. in December 2010, the LAPD released 180 photos of unidentified women much like the FBI did with Samuel Little, and they are asking for the public's help in identifying the women. So L.A. Police Chief Charlie Beck said, these people are not suspects. We don't even know if they are victims, but we do know this. Lonnie Franklin's reign of terror in the city of Los Angeles, which spanned well over two decades, culminating with almost a dozen murder victims, certainly needs to be investigated further. And the LAPD maintains a website with these photos, and we will post that information on our show notes. I encourage you to just go take a look. You don't, you never know. You might recognize somebody. Just take a look. It takes, you know, three minutes of your time. Um, now, and just kind of see. Go ahead. Most of these victims were black. All of these yes, victims they were, were black. Almost, almost all black. I believe there was one white victim. Um, there was one man, they be- he was matched ballistically, and they believed that he was an acquaintance of one of the other women, mm-hmm. or he, maybe he figured out that Lonnie Franklin was was the murderer or something like that. They're not sure how he's linked um, in terms of identification, but they they he was linked ballistically. Right. So okay. he kind of fits himself into the stereotypical serial killer, which stays within their race and... Exactly. Uh, for, for the most part. Exactly. And, you know, we've, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but these, most of these women did have cocaine in their system when they were murdered. And so he's also selecting a vulnerable population. It's a, it's a transient population. If if you're talking with, um, sex workers and things like that. So there's not a lot of people that are going to know these women are missing. Um, when with a vulnerable population, with people that are engaged in drug use and sex work, your, um, you're not going to have a lot of people that, you know, care for lack of a better word. So it's, he's, he knows what to do basically to get away with this for so long. Right. 
And he's able to take that addiction and probably get them to do whatever he wants them to do in exchange for providing that cocaine or whatever the drug is that he's providing to them. Exactly. I'm sure he had a supply so that he could get them to get into his car, so that he could get them to come with him someplace where they would be alone. And so Franklin was charged with 10 counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. And on May 5th, 2016... After three months of trial, but only a day and a half of deliberation, the jury convicted Franklin of all 11 counts. All right. Good. Bye. Yeah. And in that same year, he was sentenced to death. Okay. And police are still investigating that 14-year gap because some people think that the failed murder of Eniatra Washington scared him off. And Mm -hmm. some people think that he continued to murder and we just haven't identified those victims. Either A, we haven't, there's actually murdered women or that they haven't been, those murders haven't been linked to him yet. Right. So that's kind of the end of his story because on March 28th of 2020, Lonnie Franklin Jr. was found dead in his cell at San Quentin and there were no signs of trauma and the death is unknown pending the results of an autopsy. So how old was this guy? He was 67 when he died. So reasonably that doesn't young. doesn't seem... Yeah. Just to just... Yeah. Right. To have right. natural causes. So don't know what happened. Um, if we have any more info about um, his cause of death. But there's no signs of trauma according to what the prison officials have released. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I I find this case particularly interesting just because I've heard numerous podcasts cover this topic and and talk about Lonnie Franklin Jr. But Mm -hmm. there's just so little known about his past. I would just I'm so curious as to how he was raised. Did he have a domineering mother who abused him or did he have a father who was an alcoholic that beat him? I mean, there's just so many factors that we don't know about here that we're just speculating on that just make this such an interesting case. Yeah, he's very much like Israel Keys. Like, we know even more about Israel Keys, um, like yeah. his in, in childhood. But, like, yeah, we don't know anything about his background before he joined the Army. We know very little about what happened in the Army other than the conviction for rape. Um, we don't know anything about his family life. We don't know if um, he had brothers or sisters or anything like that. Um, I do think he was married and had children or was married at one point, if not married at the time of his arrest and he had children. Yeah. Um, obviously he had Christopher Franklin was his son. Um, there's, I mean, that's it. That's all we know about him. But he definitely flew under the radar. Mm-hmm. He did time in the military. Like I think he probably appeared from the outside. Like he was a totally mm-hmm. normal dude. Definitely. Which is even scarier, as I find those guys to be the creepiest, the ones that just fly under the radar and everyone thinks they're normal. And then it's like all of a sudden you find out your next door neighbor murdered like 20 people. It's so creepy. I mean, I guess that also raises the question, though, why did he fly under the radar? Was it because of his victims? You know, like I think it was a perfect storm. It had yeah. to have been a perfect... Not only were did he fly under the radar, he had the police connections, he had the ability to kind of look and see what he needed to do to hide himself the best. And then as well, the police didn't care about these victims back then because there was this perception that sex workers and drug addicts were not real people and not humans. Mm -hmm. So it just, it creates this perfect swirling storm where that's why they had five freaking serial killers operating at the same time. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is... Which I doubt there's very many times and places in history, with the exception of, like, I think, were there three in Santa Cruz, three or four? Two in Santa Cruz at, that, at the same time. Um, and, you know, this is a time in history that is... <laughs> Uh, there's a lot going on yeah. and I think just yeah. because the LA area is so spread out and not as concentrated as an area like New York that it allows for the operation of multiple people in in these communities mm-hmm. killing people mm-hmm. and do you do you think that this would have been possible if it victims. was right do you think this would have been possible for five to be operating at the same time in New York or Chicago I don't, probably not Chicago, but the population density of New York, perhaps. Right. Um, And I think that California as well has a much larger uh, homeless population. mm -hmm. And because of the fact that the weather is so nice that a lot of people come and flock to that area Mm -hmm. and end up doing, working in sex work and and things like that, because it's easier for them to live and be outside for a good portion of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely chose he what he was doing with with the victims that he chose, unfortunately, because it's there. You know, there's a there's a theory of um, called you know the less dead. It's like a criminal justice um, PhD kind of introduced uh, years ago, but um, it is these high vo- high victim pool populations, high risk victims that are primarily sex workers and um, people that have drug use. Um, and transit populations and things like that that just they they were considered probably still are in some jurisdictions considered the less dead they're just not they're less than people like you said earlier I think that there has been a little bit more of an effort lately and to your point when you mentioned that the community Mm -hmm. in that particular area pushed for the police to investigate this further. I think in recent times there has been more of a push by police and certain social organizations mm-hmm. to get to know those transient populations, to learn mm-hmm. the face and the, to put a face and a name together so that those people don't yeah. fall into the cracks quite as much. And I think there's still a long way to go, but I think that there has been a concerted effort to push forward right. with, I want to know Rosie who's working the street corner on 8th Street so that I know if she disappears Right, kind and of a thing. I mean, I don't want to get like too controversial or political or what have you, but this is kind of one of the reasons I think sex work should be legal because then you're able to regulate it. You're able to, um, ha- you're able to identify people and keep an eye on people and you know, who's there. Right. I mean, so it's interesting and it's, you know, it's yeah. something that we plan on doing a show on in the future. I have some connections where we can potentially talk to some sex workers and find out how they feel about Mm -hmm. it. And it's something that we have planned for a future show. But um, it's definitely an interesting topic and one that I think needs a lot more examination and a lot more people to look into it and and see what's going on and the seriousness of the issue and the fact that there are so many people that do that for work and and why. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And why is it stigmatized and why is it illegal and why is it, you know, all these different things and why these people right. are less than say you or you or I who are a student or an attorney or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So I have finally made the transition. I don't know if we've talked about this on earlier shows, but um, made the transition from San Diego to just outside of Chicago. And I kind yeah. of kept it very quiet 
because I did not let my boss know until I was sure that I had a new job on the other Mm -hmm. end. So it was kind of nerve wracking for a little bit as I was waiting to hear back on a position that I had interviewed for, well, multiple positions that I'd interviewed for with a certain company. And then I found out that I got it and I gave my notice and, and was able to move, but I kept everything very tight to the vest for that reason. And I just squeaked in by the hair of my teeth, too, when this whole coronavirus thing broke out. So it's a very odd and bizarre time in history to be, number one, moving across the country, and number two, taking a new job. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just so many factors that were involved during this time period that it was horrifically stressful. And now it appears that everything is on the tail end and I'm able to take a deep breath and look back and say, God, was I insane for doing <laughs> this? Um, I didn't, I didn't choose to do, to do right. this during this coronavirus time, but it was very bizarre driving cost cuts. Cause I had to drive my car. There were some things that the moving company will not mm-hmm. take like alcohol plants and liquids. So I drove to Chicago, basically, yeah. um, from San Diego in my SUV with those things in my car that the movers wouldn't take. So it was about a 2,000-mile trip mm-hmm. um, on the freeways, full-on <laughs> coronavirus quarantine through most places we drove through. And it was just so interesting to see who was out there on the roads during yeah. this time. I saw a lot of truck drivers, and it just appears to me that they don't if they do, they're not outwardly showing it. I didn't see face masks. Mm-hmm. I didn't see gloves. I saw them just doing their jobs. And, you know, kudos to them because they're mm-hmm. keeping the country afloat, basically, by delivering toilet paper and groceries and all the things that they're doing out there on the roads. But it was so strange. It was like a ghost town. And we drove through Vegas. Oh, yeah. It was like a scene out of, like, some crazy zombie apocalypse movie. It was dead. That's crazy. No one was there. Yeah. No one was. I took video of it. There was not a single soul on the strip. That's crazy. It was so weird. Yeah. Yeah. A very, very bizarre situation. And then, you know, driving through and seeing most of the restaurants and different things closed. Mm-hmm. The hotels, about half of them were closed. Really? Um, we did stay at like Holiday Inn type of a situation. Uh-huh. But a lot of resorts and things with casinos oh, and, and yeah. resort-type places yeah. were closed. Um, the only ones that were really open were like the Holiday Inn, the Motel 6, because they have to right. stay open for truckers to be able to have some place right. to stay. And when we did stop to stay at hotels, there was it was dead. Yeah. It was so dead. And most places have shut down pools and recreational mm-hmm. facilities and... You have breakfast buffets that a lot of hotels offer normally that they stop doing that. So you would just go to the front desk and they would give you a bag with Mm. prepackaged like yogurt and cereal and different things. But you weren't allowed to gather in any locations with anyone else around. And they didn't a lot of them didn't provide coffee because they didn't want people to, I guess, be coming to a certain area to grab it. So it was just. It was a really surreal experience and one that I don't know I will ever see again in this lifetime. I certainly hope not. But to be out there on the roads and just see it so completely dead, like no one out there, just like a ghost town. I I mean, obviously when I moved across the country, I I made kind of like a pretty close drive to what you did. But um, obviously there wasn't like a global pandemic, so the roads regular and normal and everything. But um, 
I remember, like, did you drive through Kansas? We drove up to L.A. from, um, well, no, we drove from San Diego to L.A., and then we drove L.A. Uh-huh. through Colorado, and then up into Nebraska, Iowa, oh, okay. and then finally Illinois. Okay, yeah, because I went, uh, I actually didn't want to go through Vegas, so I actually went to Phoenix and then drove up. I also wanted to go to, like, Moab. Yeah. Um, uh, so I went yeah, I think we like were Phoenix a tiny portion to, in Utah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Utah's beautiful. It was gorgeous. But um, And then, like, I did Phoenix, and the, or Flagstaff is actually where I stopped, and then Moab, and then Denver, and then I drove all the way across Kansas, west to east. Yeah. And that's a that's a doozy. I have never, like, I stopped more on that leg of the trip than I did on any other part of the trip because, like, I was just falling asleep. Yeah, it's so boring. So I was just like, I have to, I have to get out and stretch my legs. I stopped at a rest stop, which I never do. Um, they're, like, also with me, so I had to, like, find dog-friendly hotels. And it's a whole ordeal trying to drive across the country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then the fact that most of the rest stops were closed down. All the national Mm -hmm. parks are closed. So we couldn't stop and go, you know, look at things. We mm-hmm. just had to drive by because you, you're not allowed to stop right now. Yeah. So it was kind of sad that we couldn't take advantage of that. The last time we drove through there, I mean, I think we drove through eight states, seven or eight mm-hmm. states. Because yeah. we, were, we were at Arizona at one point, Nevada, California, Colorado, Iowa. Did Nebraska. I say Utah already? Nebraska and then you Illinois. Didn't say Utah. Yeah, yeah, we went through. We were in a little portion in Utah. Yeah. But it was it was a beautiful drive. There was really we saw some snow in the higher elevations and drove through the mountains at one point in Colorado. Mm-hmm. But it was a beautiful drive. But at the same time, it was just very strange because everything is shut down. The rest stops are shut down. You, there's a little bit more of an issue finding a bathroom. And yeah. really, the only bathrooms that you can use are in gas stations, yeah. and those are open because of the truckers. So it was very strange. Yeah, that's a weird. Yeah, that's a, it's a weird time to have to make that drive. And then very few of the food places in a lot of these areas were open. Hmm. Um, they had shut down a lot of stuff, especially in Nevada. Like, it was hard to, like, we found, finally found an in and out We had to drive off the beaten path and go out yeah. quite a ways to get it because a lot of other places were already closed down. Really, the only places you find open are, like, Taco Bell, McDonald's, Arby's. I was going to say McDonald's Arby's, is always going to be open. Subway. Yeah. yeah, and everything else yeah. was closed. Or closed right. early, like very right. severely limited hours. So, And I didn't know truckers usually get off the road by like, as soon as it gets dark, they're done. Um, it's, I think it's one of those like, nas- like regulation things. They have to have so many hours of rest between like however many hours of driving. It's like, like pilots. Yeah, but you'd think some people would start later and some people would start earlier, but it seems like they all start early and yeah. end early. I don't know. Yeah, very, very interesting, uh, uh, very historic time in our country yeah. and around the world yeah, in sure. general. But it was it was kind of neat to see the license plates, too, and see who's from where and how many are, like, mm-hmm. from out of the state and, and imagine, like, where. Because I think really the only other people besides truckers that were on the road were people mm-hmm. that were essential workers going to work or yeah. people that were traveling across country like us. So you'd occasionally see these cars with loaded up with suitcases and pillows yeah. and things like that. So it was, it was interesting. But we are here on the other end. I 
we got our, our movers came last week and brought us our, our furniture and everything else. So we're finally settled in and unpacked. We have a few other things to kind of organize and get taken care of, but it's, um, my new job started last week and it has been interesting with that as well mm-hmm. because everybody's working from home. So starting a new yeah. job when you're working from home is challenging to say the least. And they ordered a computer for me and it did not arrive until today. Oh man. Yeah. So I'm getting paid. So <laughs> it's not like that's an issue, but like I haven't been able to do anything for like two weeks now, <laughs> which is a little bit crazy, you know, cause you, you, there's only so much time you can spend unpacking. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Before you're like, okay, now what's next? And then, you know, I'm done with all the shows I really wanted to watch on Netflix. And so it's like you get to a certain point where you just need like some kind of intellectual stimulation, whether it be a job or conversation with another human being. And well, yeah, so it's been um, interesting. Do my job for me or, you know, write my papers. You can. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think I'm qualified in no. the I'm just saying, if you want something to do, <laughs> you can go ahead and do some of my schoolwork for me. That'd be great. So here's Darcy working on her doctorate <laughs> in, like, biomechanics, <laughs> and she thinks Sarah, the barely attorney, <laughs> can write a paper on biomechanics. You know, just, this just shows you just how crazy we were all just getting. Just getting... <laughs> Yeah, not going to happen. almost finished, so, yeah. you know, it's not like the end of the world if it doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah, so, and then I finally had a conversation yesterday with my coworkers, which was really oh, cool. Really? Um, to kind of finally talk to them and find out how they're all feeling about everything. And um, the company that I work for, there's a lot of really cool people that work for, that work there, but it's a lot of what I'm doing is military-type work. So my position is somewhat secure because uh, we're contracting with the military, but we just found out yesterday as well that the company is taking um, a percentage. Uh, it, we, they've mm-hmm. decreased our salary during this time period to allow them to not have to lay anyone off. Or yeah, so and then they increased our vacation time. Oh, it's unpaid, but they increased our vacation time by fif- fifteen so. days. Wow. So we already get, I think we get like three weeks and then we get an additional like 20 some odd days for like holidays. And then we get an additional 15 days on top of that. So it's good and bad. I mean, it's a kind of a double edged sword. Yeah. You're not getting paid for it and they're taking 10% of your salary. But at the same time, I applaud them for coming up with a solution that everyone has to take, you know, that everyone has to be a part of. Yeah. That helps them as a company survive yeah. in these challenging times. And I hope that more companies find solutions like that because I know that there is going to be a huge economic downturn. Right. And that a lot of companies are going to be very severely impacted. So we as a society need to think of creative ideas that we can all work together to keep the economy afloat. Mm-hmm. And I think something like that, yeah, it sucks, but it's not permanent. They told us it was only going to be for like until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you know, the economy will get back up onto its feet and, and go and we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But it allows each and every one of us to contribute in some small measure to keeping the company afloat. Right. 
and everybody is doing it. There's no favoritism. There's no like we have to lay off 17 people because they started last or because they work in this particular area. It is yeah. everyone helping the company maintain solvency, which I think is great. Yeah. That is really good. That is really nice. And I think that's it's cheers to companies like that who are coming up with creative solutions mm-hmm. to survive in these really unprecedented and uncharted waters, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, in any case, anything else you want to add? Um, I don't. I was just trying to add whatever we could to end this episode on a positive note because God yeah. knows... We're all out there doing our best to survive, it. and there's a lot of people that are a lot yeah. worse than we're doing, and we all need yeah. a little hooray every now and again to keep us going. So Exactly. Yep. Uh, in any case, this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And we cannot emphasize enough how important that is, folks. Please, please, please review. Give us five stars if you can. Or give us creative feedback if you find that there is something that you don't enjoy. We're always happy to kind of look that over. And if it's a reasonable request, maybe make modifications. Um, Our email address as well is thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us an email if you have a show suggestion or if you have comments or something you want to discuss with us. Social media, Darcy? Yeah, we're at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And we post like news stories. We post our episodes there and we post some pictures and stuff like that. And we will post the information with the LAPD link for um, the photographs of these women. Too. Yeah. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I like to see the pictures of the people. I like to put names with faces. Yeah. I like to see what did this Lonnie Franklin Jr. look like? Would I look at him and immediately suspect that he was a killer? Would I think I that he was creepy looking if I ran across him on the street? And it's just, it's so fascinating to me to look at that and to see what they actually right. look like in real life. Because most of the time they don't look like right, serial yeah. killers. No, I'm with you. But in any case, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>